John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36 is going to be our text this morning. And we're going to be asking the question, is life a comedy or a tragedy? When I was in college, I was an English major. The only thing you can do if you're an English major is you can be a writer, i.e. a barista, um, or you can be a teacher, or for me, I was an English major because I like to write, because I like to read, but mostly because I wanted to learn how to communicate and to put words together because I knew I wanted to be in ministry. As part of my English degree, uh, we took a class on Shakespeare. Shakespeare, as you all know, like if anyone knows anything about English literature or literature in general, they probably got like a short list of names, if any. One of those names is going to be Shakespeare. And Shakespeare's most famous play is what? Romeo and Juliet. If you know anything about literature, you know Shakespeare. And if you know anything about Shakespeare, you know about Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet is not a happy story. I don't know if you know how it goes. It's been around for like 500 years now. I don't want to give away the ending. But Romeo and Juliet both die. Okay, I'm sorry to give the ending away. I'm still holding on. I'm not, one day I will give away the ending of Avengers Endgame from the, from the stage, but I will not do that this morning. But Romeo and Juliet, I feel safe telling you, it does not have a happy ending. When I took this Shakespeare class, I learned that there are basically two kinds of plays or stories that Shakespeare wrote. Romeo and Juliet is what's called a tragedy. A tragedy is a story that ends with a death. It's a story that ends with somebody dying. The other category is called a comedy. Now, when we think of comedy, we think of someone standing on the stage telling jokes, or we think of a movie that's kind of slapstick or funny or maybe even off-color. But that's technically, in, the, in history, that's not what comedy meant. Comedy wasn't just something that was funny, but it was a story that had a happy ending. It was a story that had a happy ending. And so any story with a happy ending would have been called a comedy. And so Shakespeare wrote comedies. And almost always the way a comedy ends is with a wedding. A tragedy ends in death. A comedy ends with a wedding. A happy ending. Sometimes called a Hollywood ending. The question I think that presents itself to us as we live in the world that we live in is, is our world a world of tragedy or a world of comedy? Is it a world with hap a happy ending or a world with a tragic ending? And I think it's confusing because you all are like me. Don't pretend you're not, you're, don't pretend... I, we're all friends here. You don't have to pretend to be more spiritual than you are. You watch TV and look at your phone at the same time. I know you do, okay? We all do. It's okay. You're watching your Hallmark movie, all right, if you're married to my wife, which I am, and, and, and you're, she's said she wants to watch a Hallmark movie, and so you're watching it, but because it's a Hallmark movie, you're not that interested in it. And so you're scrolling through Facebook and Instagram at the same time. Every Hallmark movie is the same story. It is a 
small town girl who's gone to the big city, lost her way, and has gone home, and she's engaged to some guy who's all about his career, doesn't want to settle down, and then she meets her old high school sweetheart, and he all of it, he's still, by some miracle, like 37 and still single and not a loser or weird, and so they end up falling in love, and, you know, and the story always ends in one hour and 59 minutes in. They kiss, and then it's over roll credits, okay? That's a Hollywood ending, a Hallmark ending. That's a comedy. That's a happy ending for the story. While you're watching that, though, you're scrolling on your phone, and you're seeing, oh my goodness, there was another school shooting. Or you're seeing, you're seeing all of these stories coming at you all of the time. Some of them are happy, but many of them are tragic. And it makes you ask the question, what kind of world do we live in? Is it a story with a happy ending or a story with a tragic ending? Well, I think in the, in the Bible study text for this morning, John chapter 3, we're going to see that God is actually writing the story of the world to end with a happy ending. God is writing what Dante called a divine comedy. He's writing a story that will end with a wedding. And that in this story, every single person has the opportunity to be a part of that happy ending. And that every single person will be faced with the decision of whether their own story will end in eternal tragedy or eternal comedy. Eternal death or eternal joy. So before we get into the text itself, let's just ask God's help and let's pray. And then we'll, we'll dive in, okay? Our Father in heaven, I just ask that your spirit would have freedom to speak to your people, to build up your church so that we would be um, more, more inclined to trust you when we're stressed or anxious, that we would be more inclined to worship you when we're tempted, and that we would be, um, we would be the people you've called us to be. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So the, the text this morning, John 3, 22 through 36, has two movements that are going to show us the divine comedy that God is writing. And, and the first is this, to remember whose day it is. Remember whose day it is in 3, 22 through 30. God is writing a story that's going to end in a wedding. And we're going to see that the wedding has a very specific person at the center of it, and that person is Christ. Now, this part, to remember whose day it is, as Jesus has come now, he's in chapter 3, he was talking to Nicodemus, right? And Nicodemus comes to him at night, all secretive, and says, you know, what do, what do, you know, we know you're a teacher who comes from God, and he tells Nicodemus, you must be born again, and they have this conversation. Now we see in verse 22, after this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside where he spent time with them and baptized. So Jesus, the way, the way people who get married in our culture signify that commitment is with wedding rings. The way Jesus signifies commitment and the marriage of Christ to his people is through baptism. And so that's the first thing we see under this, this first movement is to get baptized. Get baptized. 
Jesus was baptizing with his disciples. Then in verse 23, it says, John was also baptizing. That's John the Baptist was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water there. People were coming and being baptized since John had not yet been thrown into prison. So on December 1st, we are having baptisms right after service. And the reason we're having baptisms is because that is the way that Jesus pictures entering into this relationship with him. Not something that is like a magic formula that creates life in us, but something that signifies the life we already have. As, as, as Christ is, is wedded to his bride, the church, we see that the way that is signified and sealed is through baptism, much like two people are making commitments to each other at the altar and they exchange rings and say, with this ring, I thee wed. And that ring isn't what makes them married, but it shows that they are married. And, and so like my wife gets really upset when I take my ring off and fiddle with it and spin it on the table. I don't know if anyone ever saw that episode of Everybody Loves Raymond where he's spinning it on the table and it goes down the vent in the hotel. Oh, and so she, she saw that, and ever since then, every time I take it off and spin it on the table, she gets really upset with me. Why? Because it's a symbol. It shows that we're married. So some of you may need to take that step of obedience to be baptized. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be baptized. Here we see that Jesus himself supervises these baptisms. Look, it says that he spent time with his disciples and baptized there was this baptism of John the Baptist, who was a forerunner of Jesus, and it was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, we see the scripture says. Now Jesus is coming along and instituting the, the, the fullness of the practice of baptism, and, and, and we're going to see how this creates a little conflict between John's disciples and Jesus in just a minute. But the point of this is this, the importance of baptism to signify your salvation. One time, you know, as a pastor, you counsel with people and you talk with people and there's a young man who wanted to be baptized. And I said, why do you want to be baptized? He said, because I, I feel like I need an awakening in my life. And that, that I, I, I said to him, you know, that I'm glad you want an awakening. That's, I think God is working in your heart and doing something. But that's not a good reason to be baptized. To, being baptized signifies that something has already happened in your heart and your life. And so we said, why don't we wait and uh, we waited, and, and, and then some other things happened in his life, and, and he, he wasn't a Christian. And, uh, and so I don't want you to get baptized because you think, you think it's like some sort of magical thing that's going to make everything better, but because Jesus himself exemplified it and commanded it. Get baptized. The second thing here in this first part is to kill the competition mindset. Kill the competition mindset. It says, a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about him was with you across the Jordan, is baptizing, and everyone is going to him. The, these guys, they, they had missed the point. They, were in, they thought they were in competition with other Jewish sects for people. Um, scholars tell us there were a number of Jewish sects or groups during this time period, and they would sometimes compete with one another for followers. Sounds a lot like churches today, right? Where we're, we're trying to get other Christians from other churches to be a part of what we're doing. 
instead of going out and finding people who are not Christians and leading them to Christ and having them join us. And, and so they're, they're, they're a little bit protective of John. They're saying, oh, Jesus is here baptizing. This might cut into our market share. One writer says they had conflated the witness with the one witness too. This is a, a dangerous thing in ministries and churches when the mission becomes about the man and not about the Messiah. The mission is never about the messenger. It's always about the message. It's always about the one who came and gave his life for the bride. John's disciples, they, they had misunderstood that. They had missed that. We're not here as a church to, to you know, we got a cool brand. I don't know if you've seen our logo. It's, it's cool. Like the little lighthouse thing, it's based on the Hillsborough Lighthouse, you know, at, at the Hillsborough Inlet and technically in, in Hillsborough Beach across the street from, you know, it's across the intercoastal from Lighthouse Point in Pompano. It's a sweet logo, but we're not here to get that logo out into the world. We're here to be a part of the movement that Jesus is building in this part of the world and across the world for the glory of his name. It's not about me or about our brand or about our church. It's about multiplying disciples. Kill the competition mindset. Number three, under this first point of remembering whose day it is, know your role. Know your role. Look at what John says to his disciples. I wonder if he had like this, this punch in his gut because he's like, these people are supposed to get it and they've been following me and they have no idea. They, they don't get it. And I wonder, I wonder if, if there was this sense where John felt a sense of failure because his disciples didn't understand. Every once in a while, I, I got pastor friends and I, we talk. And they say, you know, sometimes I think I'm doing a good job. And then someone in my church will say such and such. And I was listening to so and so or I think this and that. And they're like, oh, my goodness. Have they listened? Apparently, they didn't listen to anything I've been saying. I wonder if John felt that way. He corrects them. He says, no one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Life verse right there, John 3.30, right? My, my dad's like older than me. And um, he got a tattoo late in life with a cross and John 3.30 because that's his life verse. Jesus must increase and I must decrease. This is John's understanding. He knew his role. In the ancient world, in the ancient Jewish culture, there was what was called a shoshbin. Shoshbin. And it was basically the ancient equivalent of a best man. And in and, and, and a wedding today, you know, the best man is, what's his job? It's kind of a, it's kind of a misnomer, right? That Jerry, there's an old Jerry Seinfeld bit. I don't know why we call him the best man. He said, I think we should have the groom and a pretty good man, right? Because the best man at the wedding is supposed to be the groom, right? The best man is called the best man. He's supposed to be the groom's best man, the one the groom can turn to and trust for anything. This is John's role. His job is to make Jesus the star and make Jesus' wedding to his bride 
everything it's supposed to be. One writer says the difference between John and his disciples was not that one knew of Jesus and the others didn't because they both knew about Jesus. The difference is what they knew about themselves. John knew his role. He knew his role was not to be center stage, but to be stage right, pointing to the star. There's a Lecrae song. It says, I can play the background, a trail of stardust leading to the superstar. That's John's role here. He says, at the point of his not, John the Baptist could be truly who he was supposed to be. You're never going to be who God has called you to be until you realize what he has not called you to be. And what he has not called you to be is your own savior, your own Messiah, your own figure everything out, fix it person. You are called to be someone who receives from Jesus. And as long as you're trusting in yourself and as long as you're trying to do it in your own strength, you're, you're missing out on what Jesus is offering to you. John understood. John understood that Jesus was the one he was there to serve. And so he corrects his disciples. He corrects his disciples and he says, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I'm just the best man. I am here to elevate the groom. He knew his role. Do you know your role? Do you know your role? What is your role? We all have, we all have lots of roles, right? I have lots of roles. I'm a pastor, teacher, professor, student, husband, father, coach. I, I, we all have all, we could probably list each of us 10, we could use all of our, you know, I can't count higher than my 10 fingers. I could, I could get all the way to 10 with all of the different roles that I play in the world and in my family and in, in my calling and my job and all these things. And you could too. But what is your number one role? What is my number one role? I am a child of God. A Christian's number one role is to be a beloved child of the Father, to be the beloved bride of Christ. Isaiah 62, verse 5. This is in the Old Testament. John the Baptist understood the Old Testament. He said he, he, he knew his role was to prepare the wedding. The Lord says to Israel in Isaiah 62, verse 5, As a groom rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Hosea 2.16 says, In that day, this is the Lord's declaration, you will call me my husband. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Modern weddings are all about the bride, right? Modern weddings are all about the bride and you know the bride's you know, vision for the day, and that was the case in my wedding. Um, I wanted three things. I wanted cashews, I wanted coffee, and I wanted lemon cake. And everything else, Laura got to decide, and I was fine with that. In the ancient world, though, the wedding was about the groom. In the ancient world, the wedding was about the groom. And so when it says that Christ is wedding a bride, it's saying that Christ is the point of this thing. Remember whose day it is. It's the groom's day. I don't know if you've ever been in a wedding party. And uh, as a pastor, I do weddings. And it's always interesting to see the dynamics in play. Because you often will have the bride and the groom... And then you will have one or more well-meaning family members who want to 
run the rehearsal for the wedding. I was doing a wedding one time for some friends, and it was like, you know, they're both pretty, you know, patient, not sort of maybe sort of passive and not uh, like necessarily like get out in your face and get in front of it. And they had some family members who were not that way. And so they were saying this and this and this and, oh, you should do this and, oh, you should do this and this should be like this and you should be like this. And there was no wedding coordinator. So it's my job as the pastor there to step in and say, listen, all of y'all are going to have your day or had your day and you can run things then, but this is their day. And so we're going to do things the way they want. And there's only going to be one person in charge and it's none of you. And they're all, <laughs> they all thought I was a jerk, but that's okay. You know, the rehearsal got done. We got done on time. And, I, and everything was smooth. John's here. He's saying, look, this is not your day. And you don't get to run the show here. Remember whose day it is. Know your role as the bride of Christ. And as you get to that, that, that last verse there, he must increase, but I must decrease. What, what John is saying there is that his ministry is ending and Jesus' is beginning. Because John's ministry was a role of preparation. Jesus' ministry was a ministry of fulfillment. But it applies to us. Is Jesus getting bigger and bigger in your life? It's not that Jesus increases in size because Jesus is always big. What happens, though, is our perspective changes. When you're farther away from something, it's smaller, right? And so you see those pictures people put on Instagram, and they're at the Eiffel Tower. And, or, or like, like uh, last month we went back to my home state for a family wedding, and we went to the Golden Gate Bridge, and you're sitting, our kids are there, and the bridge is like this big. And, and you get a picture, it looks like you're holding it in your fingers. What, why is that? It's because you're so far away. The bridge hasn't changed size, you're just further away from it. If Jesus is small to you, it's because you're too far away. Draw near, and you'll see him for how big he is. Draw near to Christ. Is he big in your eyes? Is he big in your estimation? Is this your heart, that he would increase and you will decrease? Remember whose day it is. Second movement of the text Verses 31 and 30 through 36. Join the wedding party. Join the wedding party. There are three weddings in this passage. First, a wedding of heaven and earth. In verse 31 through 33, and really in verse 31. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. A wedding of heaven and earth. We are obsessed. I've talked about this before. We're obsessed with the beyond, right? The two highest grossing movies of all time. What are they? Both on Disney+, Plus, by the way. Avengers Endgame. And Avatar, what are they both about? Aliens. Why? Because we're obsessed with this idea that there's something out there beyond this world that we can see. We're obsessed with this idea that heaven holds something that we're not quite getting our mind around. And it's true. That impulse comes from the fact that God has written eternity into the hearts of people. And the reason... That Avengers and Avatar are 
$3 billion grossing movies is because they tap into the human longing for something beyond the world that we can see. And that's ultimately people who go and they buy a Disney Plus subscription, which, by the way, not a bad thing to do. I would, you know, get rid of Netflix, buy Disney Plus. That's fine. That's a great, that's a good investment, by the way. I'm not recommending it, but if you did that, I wouldn't judge you. The reason people do that is because they're looking for Jesus. People who do that are looking for heaven on earth. And here in the text, we see that Jesus came to wed heaven and earth together. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, and no one accepts his testimony. The one who's from the earth only speaks in earthly terms. Here it's talking about John the Baptist, right? But I think it applies more broadly. Why is Tony Robbins worth a billion dollars? Tony Robbins is giving earthly advice. Some of it's good advice. Some of it's oh, yeah, a little weird. Okay? Why is, why, why is he able to rally so many people together? His charisma, but, but what? he's giving earthly testimony. And earthly testimony is of limited value. Only the witness of the one from heaven can truly give us what our hearts long for. The wedding is a wedding of heaven and earth. Second, it's a wedding of God and humanity. Verses 34 and 35. The one whom God sent speaks God's words since he gives the Spirit without measure. There's the Trinity right there, by the way. The one whom, that's Jesus, God sent, the Father, speaks God's words since he gives the Spirit without measure. So there's this, there's this mysterious reality at the heart of everything called God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons, eternally one God in three persons. And God the Father sends God the Son and God the Father gives the Spirit to God the Son, and then God the Son comes, becomes a human man, so that he can live a sinless life, die a sinner's death, be buried and raised from the dead, so that ever anyone who will repent of their sins and trust in him will be forgiven and given new life. This is the triune God at work in the world. A wedding of God and humanity. What's that talking about? It's talking about what we celebrate at Christmas, the incarnation of the Son of God. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, incarnate deity. God came to bring humanity and God together. Heaven and earth and God and humanity wedded together in the person of Jesus Christ. Sometimes you say to someone, when you're going through something they've never experienced, you say, you don't have any idea what it's like. You have no idea what it's like. And God, I mean, the eternal, infinite God. How could he have any idea what it's like to be a, a finite, limited person, human, like me? It's like, God, it's, I mean, it's got to be so easy for you. You're all-powerful, all-knowing, perfect, self-sufficient. You, how, how, you have no idea what it's like to be me. Except that he does. Because God the Son became a man, and he knows exactly what it's like. C.S. Lewis said, sometimes we think Jesus doesn't understand temptation because he never gave into it. And he says that's exactly the opposite. Because the longer you withstand temptation, the more you know its strength. 
If you give in to temptation in the first five seconds, you have no idea how hard it is to withstand it for five hours or five days or for a lifetime like Jesus did. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer physically, emotionally, mentally. Jesus, and in the person of Jesus, God himself knows what it's like. This means that anything you're going through, anything you are going through, you can bring to Jesus, and he will get it. It's a wedding of God and humanity. Third, it's a wedding of sinners and God. Verse 36. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Is the story of the world a comedy or a tragedy? Well, God is writing a story with a happy ending, a comedic ending. I was talking to a friend one time about the movie Shawshank Redemption. Now, here's the pro- I was talking to the guys earlier during setup. Every time I mention a movie, people think I'm recommending. I'm not, I never recommend movies. You should not watch any of these movies, right? Do not watch any of these movies, okay? I'm not recommending them. If you watch them, it's not my fault, okay? But in the movie Shawshank Redemption, it has an incredible happy ending. Andy Dufresne, who's been wrongly accused, tried and convicted and imprisoned for 20 years, engineers his own escape from prison, escapes from this prison and makes it down to Sahuateneo, Mexico, and gets his boat and his little life on the beach. And then his friend, Morgan Freeman, Red, ends up getting out on parole and goes and meets him on the beach. And it's this beautiful shot of the the camera pulling back and, and Red, Morgan Freeman, walking up to Andy Dufresne, Tim Robbins on the beach as they see each other for the first time in years and hug in freedom. I was talking to a friend about this happy ending of this story. I say, isn't the ending of that story incredible? And they're like, yeah. I mean, the ending's very Hollywood. And, and, and just that cynicism of, yeah, we know Hollywood writes happy endings, but that the real world doesn't work that way. And here, I'm here to tell you that the Bible tells us that God invented the Hollywood ending. God invented the comedy. God invented the wedding at the end of the film. And every person here, every one of you, can be a part of that happy ending, that comedy, that wedding, as part of the bride of Christ. And the question is, will you receive Christ? Will you receive the good news that you can be a part of the wedding party? The... the, The bad news of your situation is that anyone who does not accept the Son or rejects the Son will not see life. Why? Why will they not see life? Because you have death inside of you. You're born in death. You're born spiritually dead, which is why you die physically and will eventually die eternally in judgment. But it doesn't have to be that way because the bad news of your sin and of of death does not have to be the tragic ending of your story because Anyone who believes in the Son has eternal life. If you turn from your sin, you trust in Christ, you believe in Him and all that He is and all that He did in His perfect life, sinner's death, burial and resurrection, you will be saved, you will be forgiven, and you will be part of that 
happy ending. When Laura and I were getting married, we, we engineered our wedding ceremony around three texts. Genesis 2, where God brings the woman to Adam. Ephesians 5, where it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then Revelation 19. This is the end of the book, by the way. If you know anything about the Bible, starts in Genesis, ends in Revelation. Here's the end of the book. Revelation 19. If we could put that slide up. I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, like the rumbling of loud thunder, saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and give Him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride and His bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Then He said to me, Write, Blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. And he said to me, these words of God are true. Anyone can have a happy ending. And the question is, will your story be a comedy or will it be a tragedy? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I just ask that you would help us have eyes to see and faith to believe that you are at work in this world to bring good out of evil, to bring light out of darkness, to bring hope out of despair, to bring glory out of ashes, to bring life out of death. And Lord, Lord I just ask you would give us faith to believe in who Jesus is and what he did. To remember whose day it is, to know our role, to join the wedding party. And in that, to have our chains taken off. Lord, some are in bondage to chains of fear, some in bondage of ch chains of pride, some in bondage of chains of lust, some in bondage in chains of greed, some in bondage to chains of sloth, some in bondage to chains. Lord, there's just, there are more chains than we could name, but there is one name that's above every chain, and may he break our chains and set us free. In Jesus' name we pray.